Hello, and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologist, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people just like you working to understand viruses and how they affect you. With the increased detection of variant of concern viruses, coupled with the slow pace of the vaccine rollout, on January 26, 2021, we talked with Dr. Tristan Jordan, a postdoc in the 10 over lab at the Iken School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City about his work using CRISPR screens to identify new potentially druggable targets for SARS-CoV-2 and the importance of vaccination, especially in people of color who have been hard hit by this pandemic. Tristan received his PhD from the University of Chicago, where he worked in the lab of Glenn Randall, focusing on understanding how dengue virus modulates cell signaling pathways to initiate a proviral lipid droplet specific autophagy program. In the 10 Over Lab, he continues work on the cell biology of virus-host interactions, including SARS-CoV-2, and the regulation of the antiviral interferon response. Hi, Tristan. I'm happy to have you with us today. Uh, why don't you tell us about yourself? How did you become interested in virology research? Yeah, um, so <laughs> I was trying to think about this. I don't know how I actually became interested, but uh, somewhere along the way, uh, I kind of grew up wanted to do either like science or language. And then uh, I ended up doing science because I got to the end of like studying uh, classics, Latin and Greek. And then um, I just realized I'd having more questions, but it was also uh, April of my senior year. And so I needed to find something else to do real fast. <laughs> um, so I ended up in a post back. Uh, and at the time before I rotated in like cancer labs, but I had taken a microbiology course in my junior year that probably got me really interested in microorganisms in general. And just thinking about how something so small, both physically and when we talk about viruses, like the actual genome size can overtake something as large of, as us. Um, and so uh, that postback program was at the University of Chicago. Uh, and that's where I, uh, and I landed in the lab of Glenn Randall, who studied at the time hepatitis C virus um, and had a really great time doing that, uh, so much so that I reapplied, I applied to University of Graduate School and stayed in his lab for my PhD, uh, where I worked mostly on dengue. So. Okay, cool. And had you been exposed to sort of science earlier on in like middle school, high school, through your family, or was it just something that kind of came up later? Yeah, definitely came up late. Well, I think it was always there, but it was not definitely wasn't my family. So my parents are uh, career Navy uh, enlisted people. Um, and so all they really wanted us to do was just like my brother and I was like, A, don't assume the military will be the thing you do. And then B, figure out, figure out whatever it is that you want. Uh, and the only thing I can ever remember is I used to break a lot of stuff as a kid, like I guess most of us do. Uh, and so my dad told me I should go work at like underwriters laboratory where people get to break things for a living. <laughs> uh, but aside from that, which was like when I was like five or six, um, it was probably just uh, what ended up being my own natural interest and what I was able to gravitate towards. Um, my brother got all like the chemistry sets that I never played with and he never used. Um, and I just ended up in science along the way. And I guess, how did you find sort of your, um, the labs that you ended up going to? So how did you pick those labs in particular? What was it that sort of attracted you about those specific labs? 
Yeah. Um, so part of it is like the sloppiness of chance, but also like kind of uh, also being like allowing myself that sloppiness, right? So um, I, when I, after my post back, I realized that I wanted to do virology. Um, and when I got there to Chicago, it was between, to do my post back, it was between either viruses or bacteria. Um, and I just thought the question of something so small and navigating something so large was just even more pronounced for uh, a virus person. So then I just kind of like found the right virus person to work with and you got to do like little mini rotations. Um, and Glenn and I had a really good like personal relationship and then I enjoyed people in the rest of the lab. So it was uh, a really good uh, environment for you to land at and to like make mistakes and not feel like I'm the worst person. Um, so that was really great. Um, when I transitioned to graduate school, I wasn't dead set on staying in Glenn's lab, but as I popped around to some of the other bacteria labs uh, in the department, because uh, it was mostly bacteria, bacteriology then, um, probably still is, uh, I, there were some really interesting things, but there was nothing as interesting. I realized I wanted to be a virologist, like not a microbiologist, right? Um, and then when I came to Ben's lab, uh, I, I had seen him give a talk uh, previously during my PhD. Um, and yeah, he has a ton of energy, a thousand ideas. Uh, and I was just like, I wonder if I study under him, if I can just like glimpse even a little bit of this for myself, right? Like, you know, <laughs> like he has like a thousand ideas a minute. Can I just get like 10? Um, <laughs> uh, and learn how he does that. So that was what made me excited about, uh, working with Ben and pursuing him for my postdoc. Okay, cool. And um, I guess, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the research that you've been doing in your postdoc? Some of the, I guess, maybe some of the research that you're working on originally, and then maybe some of the work, the research you've been doing on uh, SARS, uh, COV2, and COVID. Yeah, so uh, it's, almost, it's almost impossible to remember what I was doing before a year ago now, um, but uh, largely, it was just kind of studying a couple different individual antiviral factors. And so uh, the favorite one from Ben was this protein Drosha that he's described uh, previously. So Drosha is normally part of the microRNA processing machinery, uh, normally resides in the nucleus. Um, but during uh, moments of stress, uh, it'll translate to the cytoplasm. Um, and it does this during viral infection. This, and this pathway seems to be distinct from other stress pathways that trigger this movement. Um, and so we were really interested in that because once Drosia comes out, it then has uh, an antiviral activity against uh, mostly positive RNA viruses. Um, and so there's this, uh, I really love the idea of things outside of interferon that are antiviral, right? Um, <laughs> and so just kind of cataloging these things. Um, and along those same lines, he once, uh, not once, for about the first year of my uh, postdoc, my goal was to like try to get a plant virus to replicate in human cells. And that also kind of really got me on this idea of like, you know, we say like it doesn't work because like death of, death of a thousand cuts, right? This is like a transgenic boundary we're trying to cross, like whatever. Um, but then you kind of wonder like, well, what are those thousand cuts, right? Like, if I put you in like two nine three T cells, which have no appreciable interferon response really, right? And you still can't replicate, like what is actually holding you back? 
And so that got me really interested in just kind of cataloging these factors that aren't interferon-based, um, but also that are able to restrict viruses through their natural activity. Um, that all got thrown away, uh, <laughs> like everything else everyone's done. Um, and then, uh, so about March last year, the end of March, the lab switched over completely to working on coronavirus. Uh, and in the beginning, I was just help. I don't have any animal, uh, I don't do any animal work. Uh, and in the beginning, there was a lot of work being done in like uh, ferret models, uh, looking at the trans transcriptional uh, profile of uh, SARS-CoV-2 SARS infected cells in the lab. And so I was just helping processing those samples and whatever random, um, uh, collaborations that would come through because we were also one of the first uh, places in New York to be able to use uh, the coronavirus and have our facility up and running. Um, and so around May, uh, we got an email from uh, uh, our collaborator Neville Sanjana down at the New York Genome Center. He wanted to do a CRISPR screen. Uh, so uh, that was awesome. Uh, there had been interest and doing it in the lab, but everyone was just crazy overwhelmed. Um, and so they essentially just like, were like, if we make all the things, will you throw a virus on it? And I was like, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. That's exactly my bandwidth right now. Um, and so the last, you know, seven, eight months since then has been just, uh, you know, working through that screen, working on the hits, doing follow-up on those. Um, and then probably around October is when things got, like kind of calm again, where I could start thinking about doing work of my own. Um, and so some of that has continued with coronavirus, other collaborations, and then trying to understand the proteome of a replication complex and understand the formation of those things. That's okay. kind of where we are now. So I guess to follow up on some of the CRISPR screen, what was the, um, I guess, can you let us know what the uh, goal of this particular CRISPR screen was? What were you looking for in doing it? Yeah, you know, I kind of <laughs> kind of wish you had thought about that first. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, so at first, you know, the standard line of the CRISPR screen is you just want to see what's required, right? And then from there, you, uh, especially in the pandemic sense, we want to pull out uh, things that are druggable targets. Um, and so we definitely did some of that, right? But uh, the model we used, the ACE2A549s, while great at replicating the virus, uh, then all you get is kind of like, like the... I think out of the top 36 hits, essentially like 33 of them were describing either the endocytosis of ACE2 or the recycling of it back to uh, the plasma membrane, right? And so while that's useful biologically, it wasn't necessarily like what we wanted to know. <laughs> um, uh, but there's still kind of really good druggable hits. So uh, there's a uh, VPS34, which is PI3 kinase. Um, we had quite a few drugs that were able to inhibit quite strongly um, and uh, drugs that have been published in other groups that fall in that similar pathway have also shown to have strong effects. Um, and so that's been nice, but. Yeah. Okay, so I guess to follow up on that, you know, is there a, a different way that you could use a CRISPR screen, do you think, um, to actually screen for more druggable targets or? Yeah, so. Uh, Having gone through it once. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say um, a better way is uh, a cell line that contains both the like plasma membrane and endosomal pathway for SARS-CoV entry, right? Um, so I like I have a particular bias. I 
think entry is like the least interesting part of the virus life cycle. The virus gets in. <laughs> um, I'm sure some of my friends will not be pleased with that. But um, so uh, if you eliminate like the restrictions of entry, then you're kind of really focused on what's happening for the virus to replicate and probably translate. Uh, and those tend to be uh, like, will probably be like, could possibly be druggable targets, right? Um, so that's how I would kind of like redesign the screen. Yeah. It was time. Cool. And, and is that sort of the focus also of the proteome work that you're doing with the... Yeah, so uh, a little bit, um, it's, it's, it's like half useful, half nerdy. Um, so when positron RNA viruses and pox viruses infect the cell, they create these beautiful replication compartments inside uh, the cell. And this is something that's just enamored me ever since I first saw one in like 2000 when I was working in Glenn's lab. Uh, and so I've always wanted a reason to be able to study them. Um, and so like now there is like a super sexy virus that uh, because of all the previous work in uh, like MHV and other beta coronaviruses and SARS and MERS, people know a lot about the viral components to forming these. Um, and so now I can combine that information with uh, getting uh, kind of proteome of the cellular components that are there and asking what's important for the formation and what's important for the function uh, and what are these actual functions because the function is kind of nebulous. But inside of that, one would also find uh, all the different accessory factors uh, the virus is recruiting in order to make this happen. Um, and you know, presumably some of those would be druggable targets uh, and then you can go down that pipeline also ask like, can we find a target uh, a, a kind of, that can be used therapeutically uh, in the advent that uh, the vaccines uh, don't get the saturation that they need or we have these mutants, these mutant strains that pop up and evade immune immunity, you know. Right, right, cool, cool. So I guess um, more generally, um, what's been the most exciting moment in your career so far? Mm. Um, I think there have been two, uh, they've been really small. Um, and so the first was when I was rotating in graduate school in, in Glenn's lab, uh, a postdoc, Kelly, uh, she was doing a lot of uh, live cell imaging. And so we had a lot of like a lot of spinning disc confocal microscopes. So you could watch like one channel and then switch over to the other. But for a while, the uh, microscopy facility had a microscope with uh, two cameras. So you could simultaneously view red and green. Um, and I think we were just tracking like endosomes and lysosomes, right? Uh, but I just remember like watching, like just like watching the cell move and just be like, what is this, <laughs> right? Like, and just kind of giggling with, with joy. Um, and then the other was when we were doing the CRISPR screen, uh, so like I like the principle worked right. Like we had screened cells before to see that which ones would die when we added, added the virus and after how long. Um, but I guess I was still skeptical that I would actually like see anything. <laughs> um, and so on day six, when I looked under the microscope uh, and I just saw like just little colonies of cells growing out, just like everything. There's just debris everywhere. And they just got these little cells just like popping around. I was like, this is just so silly. <laughs> but yeah, so that was pretty nice. It's satisfying at the same time. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, well, and I guess on the converse side, what's been the most difficult thing you've had to overcome so far and as a scientist and how did you overcome it? There are a couple of things that come to my mind immediately. Uh, for one, I think, so I had a very long PhD. I had like a seven, seven year PhD. Uh, and so that does not instill confidence in oneself <laughs> um, about like my ability to do science, especially science at a high level. Um, and so kind of coming into uh, my postdoc and even while I was applying, I was just really nervous that like this was the end, like the, those seven years of grad school the end of my journey. Um, and it, I really didn't have a lot of confidence, but then coming here like moving to a different lab, being able to contribute both scientifically and intellectually, like really helped me kind of realize like, okay, I was just like, I just wasn't good at the particular project that I had and that's okay. <laughs> um, but I'm not like necessarily like a bad scientist. Um, and then the other one that's been uh, uh, interesting to get over over time, uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm black, uh, there aren't a lot of me <laughs> in, in my institutions. Uh, it's not new, most of the institutions I've been trained in from kindergarten to now have been uh, majority white. Um, and growing up like that, uh, you, like I remember teachers and peers telling me that I only got where I was because of the color of my skin, that I wasn't smart. Um, so a lot of that you internalize and carry with you. Um, and I've thankfully never actually uh, experienced it directly during my PhD or my postdoc time. Um, but you still do end up like carrying this like weight on your shoulder of like, well, why are people reacting to me this way, right? Um, and kind of just learning to uh, not assume the worst because the only person that puts work on is me, right? And it doesn't do anything. Like these people aren't thinking about that and they're, they're out here wondering why I'm carrying this burden. Um, and so that took something, that took a while to just kind of like overcome. And it was just kind of the same process of realizing like, well, there are a thousand different reasons why um, anything could be happening. You, you're the one giving the power to it being your identity. So how about just like playing that down a little bit? Yeah, yeah. And did you, is it helpful to reach out? Did you find sort of peers or mentors that helped you with that? Or was that something you had to do in yourself? Uh, it's something I had to do by myself. Um, I'm also a very go to alone type of person. So that could also help. Uh, um, but insofar as mentors, you know, I think, I think to date, uh, I have like, interacted with uh, le like fewer black faculty members that I have on one hand, right? Um, I can count them. Um, and the first one I had a substantial interaction with was in 2015, right? Uh, at a conference. Um, and so it's, it's a little too late along the path to wait to find someone to help you along. You have to kind of like do the work yourself up until then. And then you see someone else kind of like, okay, like, we can get here, you know. Um, and then I've also had, uh, like, colleagues and peers, and during graduate school, I was part of, like, the minority graduates, uh, minority graduate council, and that was also really helpful, right, because we all kind of had the same feeling of, like, are we crazy? 
sort of related to that, if you had a chance to ask your older self one question, what would it be? So this would be you, say, 60, 70, maybe at, in retirement. What would you want to know? I wouldn't want to know anything specific. Uh, but I think what I would ask my future self is, like, was it worth it? You know, like, uh, as all of us know, uh, <laughs> like, there's, there's so much that you kind of give up uh, to do science, like the long hours, like you miss family time, miss friend times, so people coming out of your lives because of this, right? Um, and you just kind of like, and while, while you're doing the work, especially when you're like young, it's easy to say like, well, I'm doing it for like this greater cause. Like I wanna be a scientist. Um, but then as time goes on, you start to say like, well, like, I mean, does, does being a scientist have to cost all this, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, and so just asking my future self, like, you know, was it worth it? Were we happy? Like, you know, I know you're not gonna tell me anything that would like tell me to do something different, but you know, like, I just kind of want to know, like, <laughs> will I find the right balance? Will it have been worth it all in the end? Yeah. I mean, I guess to follow up on that, how do you try and achieve balance now? As, as we know, it's, you know, science can be consuming, you know, like, and I do think that sort of good PIs are put on this pedestal where they just work constantly and that's all they do. And so like, how do you sort of balance, you know, being a good scientist, but also having a life? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, my balance is binge. So I just binge one or the other. Um, and I haven't really figured out how to do it in like a healthier way. Um, but I will credit uh, both uh, Glenn, my PhD advisor, and Ben, my postdoc advisor, uh, are people who, uh, you know, obviously everyone wants you to work, right? But they also know that like, they, like broken people can't work. And so they encourage people to like take their time uh, and like rest themselves and rest their minds. Uh, Glenn gave me one of the best pieces of, of advice ever um he was like make sure all your friends aren't scientists because this is a weird profession <laughs> uh and you should go meet normal people um <laughs> uh and that's been really good because those friends don't understand why like yeah we, we work the hours we do right and so they just also don't have patience for like oh, i've got a 14 hour time point they're like no just stop this right uh and that helps like that helps put in perspective, like, is this necessary to do, right? Or am I just doing this to say I was in the lab doing something? Um, and so, uh, you know, during most normal times, I try to find some balance like that. And then I, before the virus hit, like I played in like a flag football league that took me out of the lab every Saturday, right? Um, and just active things to get away. So I guess to follow up on that, um, how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected you as an individual? What's changed in the past year? Yeah, um, uh, probably not a ton. Uh, so not a ton different than anyone else in the sciences, I guess. Like all my free time like was erased for a while. I'm happy to have a lot of that back though. Um, uh, you know, it's been interesting to compare myself to my non-science friends who like sit at home all day now and where I still get to come to work and the joy that that brings me not being stuck inside an apartment. Um, 
I think uh, definitely in the summer, I uh, biked around a lot more than I would normally. So I wasn't super keen on taking the subway here in the city. Um, So I would just bike around and then that got me into doing like longer 40, 50, 60 mile rides with some friends. Uh, which is never a thing I thought I would do. (laughs) Um, But it was actually a lot of fun and a thing I hope to like can do in the future, you know, when it's warm. I don't really do this in the winter. Um, uh, But yeah, so a little bit of things like that. Um, And I guess as a virologist and someone actually who works on SARS, how do you make decisions about, and how have you been doing this in the past year about keeping yourself, your family and people safe essentially, or talking about vaccines or not? How do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah. uh, I'm definitely very bullish on like talking about vaccines. Uh, In the summer I was uh, at a park with a couple of friends Uh, And inside the group, it came up that half of them weren't going to take the vaccine. And I just like went blind with rage (laughs) and have since converted them all to to vaccine adoptees. Um, And I really do uh, like, especially in this, in this, like when people don't understand the science, I'm very happy to take an active role in helping them like understand, right? Like I don't, ever really want to have a large platform where I'm talking to a thousand people, right? But like on these small intimate settings where you get to know a person, you get to understand uh, their frustrations and their, uh, the things that are making them hesitant, like being able to solely walk through some of those and unpack them. Some people have wild conspiracy theories that you'll never unpack and just like, just please stop talking to me about this. <laughs> uh, and then for like, making decisions on what to do. Uh, You know, I think one of the things that was kind of like really done poorly was giving people the tools to accurately assess risk, right? Um, And obviously anything you do that is not staying inside your house is like increased risk, right? Um, But I often uh, help my friends like through decision trees on like what they're doing, where they're going, uh, and all the things that they should take into consideration. And then for them, for also them to know, like, yes, you can do a thing, right? Um, but you should understand what might happen if you do that, right? And then just accept those consequences um, and make your choice based on those. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, what about, so as sort of uh, for the vaccines, there's obviously a very um, uh, a history, sort of like mm-hmm. the black community and vaccines. How does that sort of uh, affect the way that you think or talk about it? So it's sort of a, I, I think a not a unique but a different perspective, obviously, because there's been this historical issues, obviously, with vaccination or mm-hmm. public health campaigns. So how do you how do you deal with that? Yeah, uh, you know, it's like it's one of these things that I know, uh, but even every even still every time I confront with it, my mind is blown, right? Like uh, between family members and close friends uh, who are like, well, what about Tuskegee? I'm just like, you can't, like, you can't always say Tuskegee. Um, And so then I just really try to have uh, a very, like a much longer conversation, right? Um, And I also, I, I don't try to like, 
tell them that those fears are silly, right? Because they aren't, right? Because even today you can look in the disparity data, right? And black people have worse outcomes. Um, and so the systemic problems uh, still exist uh, and there's still an issue. Um, what I think I was telling my friends who brought this up to me during the summer was this is like, you know, if I provide you the vaccine and this is the best way to get out of this um, and this virus is uh, causing, you know, in, like more damage in black and brown communities. Um, like it's actually really important for these communities to take this vaccine because otherwise you just like your fear, your historical fear, which is entirely grounded uh, is now perpetuating a larger damage cycle. Right. And so you kind of have like, you know, you, you have two options, right? You can get on board uh, or you can't and then allow this thing to continue to run through your community and do tremendous damage, right? Um, and the fact of the matter is a lot of the um, trials were aggressive and recruiting minorities uh, so they can have a sample size and people were thinking about this, right? So I also try to communicate that that like these, this isn't a blind spot, right? And that inside the data, there's nothing wonky happening with people of color, right? Um, so. So have you guys been offered vaccines there at your institution? We have. So I was part of the Pfizer trial. Um, and so I originally received the placebo and then once it became licensed, uh, we were able to get it uh, through, the, through the trial. Uh, but shortly thereafter, around the same time, really, uh, Mount Sinai itself was distributing vaccines. Um, and because pretty much everyone in the lab works on the virus, we were all uh, uh, able to get the vaccine. I think by within two weeks, the whole lab, which is like maybe 14 of us, will have all had um, both, court, like both doses of the vaccine. Um, Right. So that feels right. nice, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, thank you much, a lot for, for the volunteering. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> people like you that made it possible. Um, what did you, so ha having been vaccinated, how does that make you feel? Uh, I really try to like pretend like I haven't been. Uh, it doesn't always work. <laughs> um, but like I, you, do, you do feel like a little bit more relieved, right? Um, because like now I know the harm is gonna be directly to me. Um, and uh, several of the friends that I see either already had it or have also been vaccinated. So like our little pod uh, is safer than it was a year ago. Um, but we, I still uh, remind myself to think, and especially now even more so about the other people I come into contact with, right? because it's unclear and probably unlikely that having an immune, like if the antibody response will stop an initial infection anyways, you might still be able to be infected, be trans like transmitted for a couple of days, um, but you just won't get severe disease or disease at all, right? Um, but you might still be able to infect other people. So just kind of keeping that in mind where I am now kind of like the worst case scenario out there, just like a person who could be like a walking time pond, like, ah, yeah. uh, spreading the virus to everyone. Yeah. So. 
Great. Well, thanks so much for talking with us. Um, any last messages for our li listeners? Any thoughts about the future of the COVID-19 pandemic? Where do you see us going in the next couple of months? Uh, I mean, the, the vaccine rollout has been getting better. So it makes me more hopeful than I was like, you know, three weeks ago for a thousand different reasons. Um, but um, so just, I would just encourage people to get their vaccines, uh, you know, uh, and maintain, like keep wearing your mask, keep social dis distancing in, in the meantime. Uh, a friend of mine just learned that he wouldn't go back to work until September. Uh, and he's like, all I have is the three rooms in my apartment. I'm going crazy. It's also winter, you can't go outside. So finding some way to uh, really like find a way to take care of yourself uh, and find like a small pot of people that you can still socialize with. Um, it's probably even important, even more so now in the winter and as this thing gets longer and longer, so. Yeah. All right, thank you. Tristan's work over the past year has focused on the use of CRISPR entry screens and proteomics of the replication complex to identify new potentially druggable targets to prevent or treat COVID-19. In addition, he talks with friends and family to evaluate the risk and encourage uptake of COVID-19 vaccines. This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackeray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, Spotify, and other podcasts, or at lmtv.podbean.com. If you are a virologist interested in sharing who you are and what you do, please contact us at letusmeetthevirologists at gmail.com. <laughs>